Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. Jeanette Dixon is the chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. She's a clinical radiologist by background and has had an incredible career in medical leadership. I just wanted to start off by you giving me a bit of a summary of your career, just sort of edited highlights and how did you end up where you are? Okay, so the accent usually gives the game away that I was born north of the border. I'm Glaswegian, like many Glaswegians, went to university in Glasgow and did some house jobs there. I am that old that I did the house jobs. Um, and then it was it was a time when often jobs were six months long and, and I, I wanted to get my MRCP. I knew I wanted to be an oncologist, but I needed an MRCP. So I wanted to get a rotation because I didn't, I wanted to be able to study without without changing job every six months. I managed to fail the, the part one MRCP first time. So I wanted some job security. So I applied for any job that was a one in five or quieter. Again, it was a very long time ago. And ended up um, having had a few interviews, I ended up in Eastbourne. So I ended up on the train to Eastbourne, not actually knowing where Eastbourne was until I looked at the map in London, Victoria. Um, and they, uh, they interviewed me, gave me a job. I went down there. I spent a while back there, got my membership first time around, the, se- the second part first time around. Knew I wanted to do oncology wasn't entirely sure where I wanted to do oncology. A job came up in Glasgow, didn't think I would be um, shortlisted for the job, but I put in an invite anyway, just to, to or a, an application anyway, just to, to get some interview practice and went up for some interview practice and was offered a job. So that was about 15 months going 500 miles one way and then 500 miles another. Um, at that time, although I got the registrar job and was looking forward to being a senior registrar. I was calmanized. Um, so there was no, it was a run through training. And again, this was before there was an awful lot of money put into cancer in the early noughties. I um, wanted to be competitive because there was no guarantee of a job anywhere. And there was certainly no guarantee of a job where I thought I wanted to work in Glasgow. So I looked around for um uh, some research and managed to get a, an MD uh, at the Patterson Institute in Manchester and did that and then managed to get an interdisciplinary transfer down to finish off my training in London Northwest in Mount Vernon Cancer Centre which is where I am now. I, I, I moved, I kept moving, kept moving and then suddenly decided that this was where I was going to be, got the consultant job here. So been a consultant since 2002 and have always done something else in addition. I think it's really important to balance your your work with something that you find gives you an opportunity to meet other people, to go out and to talk to network with other doctors and other healthcare professionals. So initially did a lot of work in the educational space, worked my way up from clinical tutor, educational supervisor, clinical supervisor through 
training programme director and was the first head of school for clinical oncology for London and KSS deaneries uh, and then went into medical management and was the CD of the department. And then after a while doing that, I felt I needed something different. So I, the college, my, my college, the Royal College of Radiologists, which is where clinical oncologists sit, um, advertised an officer post um, in professional standards, professional practice. And I did that and um, applied for that and was elected unopposed, which means nobody else wanted to do it um, at the time. And did that job and then went on to be the vice president for oncology and then the president for of the radiologists and then the academy chair came up and my colleagues were nice enough to elect me as the academy chair so the theme of clinically I'm a clinical oncologist I treat patients with cancer with all treatment modalities radiotherapy all the drug modalities but not surgery and I predominantly treat lung cancer so I've done that always always alongside every other role I've done but the theme of the other parts of my career is much more about better patient care but better patient care by better standards for doctors better support for doctors making a, you know if you make doctors lives easier better if you make them happier you improve patient safety you improve patient care so it's patient out, improving patient outcomes but by helping my colleagues Fantastic. So what an amazing career pathway. Can I, can I just get you to cast your mind right back? Why did you become a doctor in the first place? Ah, that's a that's the sort of interesting one. So, again, I'm not the first person in my family to go to university, but I was kind of the first bit, the first one in the bit that spoke to each other that went to university. And there wasn't a lot of careers advice around at that point in time. So when it looked like I had good enough grades, good enough academic achievement to go to university, there wasn't a lot of ability to go and this is what you should do. So and this is what university is for. University is about education. So I kind of took the sort of naive view that when you went into university, you got a job at the end of it. And I thought medicine looked like an interesting job. My, my parents are both healthcare professionals, but... I, it looked like an interesting job and I thought it's a job that will will never go out of fashion. There'll, there'll always be employment. It'll be a reasonable wage. So I'll be able to support myself throughout my life. Um, and I, my parents work in healthcare, so it's probably OK. So that's why I became a doctor. So it's slightly interesting route into medicine, I think. Um, it's also interesting that you you talk about doing it because it was a, a, a secure job, a good mm -hmm. job uh people now don't necessarily think that it's as good a job as you as you might have thought and I assume that you're a bit caught in the thick of it now um in your position in the academy yeah I think I think it's a really tricky one I would still recommend the job because I think the job is wonderful I think the patients and that interaction with people and help and much as it's a bit um Right, or it sounds a bit right to say helping people at some of the worst point in their lives, not necessarily getting them better, completely better or curing them, but actually helping them be the best they can be. At the moment, I think there is a lot of our colleagues who don't see that. And I think that's a real shame. I think 
as as our as senior colleagues and senior leaders, I think some of that blame must sit with us. But I think a lot of it sits with the way the way that medicine has developed and the 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 general the feeling that the NHS is not being funded appropriately, that doctors haven't been remunerated appropriately, that the 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 way trainees are trained is not helpful for trainees. Some of that. I can absolutely agree with some of it. I think, well, some of the stuff that was brought in to help trainees that trainees complained about 20 years ago, i.e., you know, having a good structured training, being able to see all parts of the curriculum, having access to all different types of hospital specialties, not being dependent on one person or one firm for a reference. I think, I think the unintended consequences of that and the huge expansion of doctors we have seen is that we have taken away the camaraderie and the support and that genuine view for some of our, our colleagues that they are actually making a difference. Yeah, I, I mean, it certainly is interesting to hear a lot of uh, a lot of younger people um, feeling burnt out. And you're right, in, in our day, somehow you had uh medical families to rely on and they don't those bonds don't seem mm -hmm. to be quite as as strong as they were so yeah i agree with you but you went into a um a you, you kept saying you always wanted to be an oncologist why did you always want to be an oncologist i mean it's dealing with some pretty tricky stuff um i think i think the thing is it, it it's as you know, medicine is a hugely broad church. You take in huge numbers of people who are all different personalities. So it's great that we all like different things. When I went on the wards, first as a clinical medical student, it was Glasgow. It was a deprived area. You got, you always got taken to see patients with signs. So you do a his, you you the your bedside classical bedside teaching model. Take a history from the patient, examine the patient, and it was. Um, the nine, it was the 80s, so you would have somebody with um, cardiovascular disease, or you'd have somebody with a pleural effusion. Generally, that was those were the signs on the medical wards at that point in time. So you'd have somebody with atrial fibrillation, or somebody somebody with bad hypertension, or somebody with congestive cardiac failure, or you'd have somebody with SVCO or a pleural effusion. And at the end of it, the the the, the teaching junior doctor as they were, usually SHO or registrar, would say so. So and so, yeah, you've got the diagnosis. He has congestive cardiac failure. This is what we're going to do, or they've got atrial fibrillation. This is what we're going to do, and this is why we're going to do it. When it came to the cancer patients, it was like, well, we're sending them off to the cancer centre, and we do, we have no idea what happens there. And it was a recurring theme that nobody really knew what happened in the cancer centre. And I thought I'd quite like to know that myself. And so I went and did an elective in the cancer centre, and I found that was true. Nobody really knew what happened, whether you were doing medicine or whether you were doing surgery. It was like a black box. And I'm, I'm one of those folk that you, know, you can't tell me something and then leave it and give me a hint and not show me the rest. So I kind of went and did an elective in the cancer centre and actually just liked the patients and liked, uh, liked the openness and honesty. At that point in time, you know, and it's still true often when you speak to patients and you say you've got cancer, they go, and when am I going to die? How long have I got to live? What's going to happen? Whereas if you say that to a patient with COPD or diabetes or congestive cardiac failure who has the same prognosis, they don't ask the same questions. And so certainly way back in the day when I started training, 
there was an honesty, which I really liked. I really like that direct, honest um, communication with patients. Um, I liked the cards on the table. And, and I also liked then when I got into clinical oncology, I really liked the radiotherapy and like the technical aspects of radiotherapy, the anatomy that you have to do to be able to plan radiotherapy. I really enjoyed the cutting edge, you know, the the literature changes so frequently that you're actually doing, you know, things change within a year or two. So you 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 have to be constantly learning. So again, it kept me, you kept me interested. It kept me enthused. It it kept me amused and 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 stimulated in a way that other specialties, when I looked at them or when I was, you know, when I was rotating through them, just didn't just didn't do it for me. So, I mean, clearly it was a good specialty for you and you've done in incredibly well in your career. Have you had bumps in the road? Is there, are there, is there anything that you think might be helpful to share that would help younger people coming through? I think, I think that's a really tricky one, isn't it? When you look back, what we all, when we all look back, we tend to remember mostly the good stuff, don't we? Because we're we're human beings and we like the good stuff. So have there been bumps in the road? Yes, there have. So you know, I mentioned earlier, I, I failed the first part of my membership. I struggled a wee while. I, I I think I had two or three interviews before I got my first SHO job. Um, I I had to I had to apply to for two or three um research posts before I managed to secure one for an MD. Um. I think I think there was also much of my training I'd lived through a belief there wouldn't necessarily be many consultant jobs there. That changed very quickly. So I think part of those those bumps are, you know, they're they're not the same when you look back on them because tech, you know, there there are there are a lot of, you know, there was always a lot of jobs out there. I was always going to get a job. It was just a question of where I was going to get a job. Or if I was willing to compromise on the fact that I wanted a one in five or quieter because I wanted to to study, so I, I think I think it's it's the bumps in the road have been what the ordinary bumps in the road you would expect. I don't think I've had a huge amount of major problems. So that's that's uh, that's pretty good. What about life outside medicine? It sounds you come across as someone. Um, with uh, uh, a lot of dedication to the to the cause, do you have time for other stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got. I, I, and I, I think the trick is also to make time for other stuff. I think you need to, you know, you you talk about being dedicated. That's lovely to hear. But there is that work life balance. What is my work life balance? Where where do I enjoy it? So I, even with all the other roles I've done, I do prioritize going out with friends I do prioritize visiting relatives and whatnot so you know I very much enjoy baking I enjoy cooking I enjoy the cinema I enjoy the theater I enjoy opera I enjoy music I enjoy socializing with friends so there's all of that kind of thing I, I do exercise regularly which I don't enjoy very much but it's very good for me so I do do it um but you know what I think one of the points at one point I realised that every time there was a chance to get a new job and move, it was either the new job or the boyfriend of the time. And I kind of um, chose to move most times. So I, I don't have a partner and I don't have kids, 
Is that because of dedication? Is that because of just the way the world is? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there are, there are some who might feel that it makes it a bit easier. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have to please anybody but yourself, which may be the reason. So you can, so you can, yeah, be as independent as 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 you want to be. Perhaps I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Um. So in your current job, you've been thrust into the limelight at a very difficult time, and you're you're having to deal with the people that are running the country. So what does that feel like? Well, you know that swan thing where the swan looks very beautiful and elegant and relaxed above the water, but underneath the waterline, it's a slightly different story. It kind of feels like that a lot. And I think it's one of the interesting things is meeting people. One of the, the things certainly with all of college existence and getting involved with the college is you meet people who are not doctors and who don't work in healthcare and who sometimes have a lot of power over healthcare and sometimes understand it really well, but sometimes have very curious blind spots. So I like people and getting to know people and getting to understand people and where, what makes them tick. And this has provided opportunity for that. It's also brought out skills that I do have. So the, the, the things that in medicine, we teach you communication skills, holding risk, negotiation, complex systems, all of those skills come into play, I think, when you when you discuss it, when you're meeting politicians, government, Department of Health, all of those things. But at the end of the day, it's making that connection, I think, with people and, and understanding that most of life is negotiation. And, you know, they have they have an agenda, you have an agenda. Can you can you align those agendas? Can you can you bring things together better? Because when you align an agenda, you almost inevitably get a prop a, a, the best outcome. And and um, I suppose I know a little bit from experience, but aligning the agenda of all of the numerous different medical royal colleges and also the government is quite a tall ask, isn't it? I, well, you know, I wouldn't want a job that wasn't a challenge, Jane. I, I think <laughs> I think. I, I think it's not as different as you as as it appears on the outside. I think more you know, I've never met a doctor yet who doesn't want to come to work to do a good job and who doesn't want to make the patient's life better in some way. And that's even not that's not just the doctors who patient face, but those doctors who don't patient face, you know, want to do the same thing. Everybody wants the patients to be better, because at least you know, we all know one day we too will be patients. I think what what government often want is to make sure that they are getting the best for the patient for the money they're spending. And so it's that discussion around what does good look like, what can good look like, what should be there, what shouldn't be there. That and that open conversation, I think, is the is where you you find that you're not as far apart as you think sometimes. Sometimes. Very <laughs> Very diplomatic answer. Um, so throughout your career, I assume that you've been inspired, motivated by by people, by events. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into what's inspired you to to work in the way that you have done and to do the jobs that you have? 
Again, I, I this is an interesting one because I if I go back and say, so why did I enjoy that job? It was often I found somebody there who spoke a language or spoke about patients in the same way that I perceive patients or spoke about the service and, and the NHS and the service delivery in the same way I did. And I think, you know, the the, the probably the the major first person I, th I think it was a role model was probably the CD when I when I was a registrar so he he in Glasgow he had a lot of common sense he was very pragmatic um, at that time there was a large number of folk in the in Glasgow there was tw 20 odd consultants at that time which was a very big department that's that's a relatively small department now but they had come from different areas and they'd been trained in different ways and he could say, well, that person was trained in that way because of the resource available in that area. So he he opened my eyes to not just the patient in front of you, but the service or the other patients. And I think most of the time when I've been when I, when I've really been struck by things, it's people taking my view from one patient in front of me to the bigger picture the bigger service, the best bang for the most patients, all of that thing. So he he was he started that off. Um, and I think coming through all of the med you know, all, all of the um educational stuff, again, Wendy Reed, who was the my initial sort of line manager when I was he head of school in London, she was somebody who was very passionate about education, very passionate about education being important and being seen on an, if, you know, the, the psychiatrists talk about parity of esteem. So everybody knows what research is. Everybody, you know, venerates academics. But who venerates those who train the next generation of doctors? Who actually makes them professional? And I think Wendy was very passionate about that. And some of that rubbed off on me as well. I think coming through the, the the college system, I've met an awful lot of folk from other specialties at a very high level. Some have been men, some have been women, but I think you know there's been an awful lot of people who who feel passionately about their specialties and who feel passionately about the service that patients receive and improving the service that patients receive. So those people I have admired and respected and listened to and often taken advice from. So uh, Wendy has also been one of my interviewees in these uh, podcasts. You'll be you'll be pleased to <laughs> pleased to know. So uh, somewhere I've chosen some of the right some of the right people. So one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why I've been running courses for women in leadership is because women often um, are relatively overlooked, and mm -hmm. various things like the gender pay gap suggest that's that the mm -hmm. case. That the case. Do you, do you think? But uh, you can identify any times when you were treated differently because you were female or have you never noticed? I think, you know, I, I think if, if you're saying recently, I think working in the NHS recently, I think that's not so much the case. But I think if you go back to when I started, so I trained in the 80s, graduated in 91 in Glasgow. So I... I, I once thought about this for a while and realised I hadn't actually worked for a female consultant 
until my first SHO job. So until 12 years after graduation, and I'd never actually been trained by a female consultant. That didn't mean there wasn't female consultants in Glasgow at the time. It's just that I had never been under their rotation. So, so uh, however, my medical year was 50% women, which was the same as medical school intake at that point in time. Or, or it was the same, it was, so we were the first year who had 50% female intake. So that was an interesting one. So I kind of came, I wasn't a proper trailblazer, you know, uh, a trailblazer. There were women, there just weren't many of them and there, they were few and far between. And did I, did I notice, uh, there was a feeling that in order to, to be appointed you certainly had to outperform the men you could you know, if, if there was if you had performed the same as a bloke in interview he'd get the job an unspoken rule nobody ever said it but it was certainly an implication um i i, I did at some point hear that you know somebody somebody had said to a male colleague you know people sitting the mrcp look at them there may be 50 percent women sitting the mrcp part one in three years time they'll all have children and be wanting to be gps and you will have a chance to get a job to the male to my male colleague who i think was pretty um pretty fearless to say that to me because i've never been i've never been slow about having an opinion and so i, I there, there has been more a kind of unspoken thing i think when it comes to the gender pay gap you see it in um local awards you see it in appraisals you see it in how women write um or how women start to write research papers and then get trained you know I, one of my favorite analogies is if you if you read a, a a local award application from a man he kind of puts his knickers on over his trousers and saves the world every day if you read one from a woman it's very much the team decided we went by consensus, we we supported each other, we helped each other. And you can't always tell the difference because these are anonymized things, but you can't you can get a very high feeling for for the gender of the person writing it. Now, is that nature? Is it nurture? I don't know. I know women in medicine often work part time. They often um have other they often take the burden of the majority of caring responsibilities. Not always, but they, they they often do. So I think their bandwidth to participate and their bandwidth to blow their own trumpet is less. And in many ways, if they see things improving that they've contributed to, they 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 need they they feel that that is recognition in its in itself. I I, I don't buy into that, but you, this is what you feel from some women. So when you say the gender pay gap. It, it was mainly around, from my understanding, mainly around other roles when people negotiate things, negotiate work for, for example, being a CD. Now, I didn't, it never occurred to me to negotiate to be the CD. It was what was offered, the pay was what was offered, I'd take it or I wouldn't take it. And I think that's that's a tricky one. It's how you get people to value that. I think... I think I've always worked in a very highly feminized specialty. So we have had many women. There are something like our, our, our current trainee intake was 73% women. Our current female across 
the patch of clinical oncology, 66% of us are women. I I think when I when I went I went part time for the first time when I became president, I'm about the only woman I know who doesn't work full time, who worked full time at that point, who doesn't work less than full time. So I think I think it's it's interesting. I I chose a specialty that I enjoyed and I liked, but there were always women there. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the the culture within a specialty sometimes yeah. seems to shine through, doesn't it? And I, I assume that you recognised a, a a gentle, but you know, one shouldn't stereotype. One shouldn't stereotype. Um, so okay, so we're getting towards the end now, and thinking of women that might be coming through. What would you say um, to women who are aspiring to be like you, to be to be women leaders? What what should they do? What advice would you give them? I think if you if you're aspiring to do it, then take every opportunity to do it. Don't necessarily wait for opportunities to appear. Try and find opportunities proactively. Don't be don't be surprised if things don't work out. And everything's not perfect because it is hard. I think leading is hard. Um, doing any sort of leadership role is hard. Managing people and managing doctors, if you ever get into that role, is hard. Um, I think practice those skills. You have skills in that area. Even if you think you don't, practice those skills because they get better the more you practice. And I think it's also a bit about um, don't think it's the it's a bit it, the imposter syndrome is a, a phrase I never came across until very recently, but to me it's not about that. It's about you can do it. You just need to think about it. You you need to challenge yourself to go up to the next level. I think take find find good friends, find people who will give you good advice and honest advice and constructive criticism and listen to them. But have a support network that you can go to who can support you when things are not great. And things are always there's always some times when things are not great. But also have People who will be honest with you, I think, is the important thing. That's excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I better let you get back to uh, running medicine. <laughs> it's a busy job, Jean. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget there are many other interviews in season one.